Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. It is a joy to be with you today and to uh, dive into God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. And the title of the message today, if you're taking notes, is Sheep in Sinner's Clothing. Sheep in Sinner's Clothing. We're working through a series I've titled Jesus Worldview. And uh, it has been a joy to march through the Scriptures together through the book of Matthew. If you're just joining us, you will notice, you'll find out uh, soon enough that we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through each book of the Bible. And I do this so that we get, a, we get the full meal. We get, we get the, the full perspective of God's Word. And uh, we're not just picking and choosing places out of the Bible that we like. It's kind of like uh, going to the buffet and only eating dessert all the time. You know, this isn't good. Uh, we need a, a, a well-rounded, balanced meal of Scripture. And so we teach through the Word of God. And this is sermon number 41 through the book of Matthew. Uh, you're only in chapter 9. How in the world did you do that? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, keep taking it a couple verses at a time. And uh, we, we enjoy a little bit at a time and, and watch what God will build. And also it helps me, again, minister topics that uh, I normally wouldn't talk about or wouldn't even look at. And today is another one of those. Heard of a story. Maybe you heard it too. Three pastors went to a pastor convention and all were sharing one room. The first pastor said, let's confess our secret sins to one another. I'll start. He says, my secret sin is I just love to gamble. When I go out of town, it's cha-ching, cha-ching, let the machines ring, he says. The second pastor said, well, my secret sin is that I just hate working. I copy all my sermons for those by, uh, given by other pastors. I just copy their sermon and I preach it every Sunday. The third pastor said, my secret sin is gossiping. And oh boy, I just can't wait to get out of this room. <laughs> sinners and, or sheep in sinners clothing. You know, Christians argue over so many doctrines under the sun. Uh, you know, you know what, what, what kind of end times uh, do you hold? What kind of end times theology do you hold? What do you think is going to happen in the future, we argue? What, what's your position on church government? How do you think it should look? What's your position on spiritual gifts? You know, are they active today? Are they not active today? We have a lot of arguing and debating going on, and it's, it is a lot of fun when it's cordial and it's a blast because we sit down with one another. We have a great time discussing these things. And at the end of it, go away, friends, of course, still brothers, still sisters. But there is one doctrine that no one argues. No one in all of the Christian faith argues this doctrine. Jesus forgave me of my sin. He forgave me of my sin. No one argues or debates this because we know it's true. That's the reason we're here. That's the reason we've come to worship this morning on this Sunday, on the Lord's Day. We celebrate his resurrection on Sundays, the day he rose from the dead, the first day of the week. And we remember his greatness and what he has done for me, for us. And I'm thankful. And I want to remember that every day for the rest of my life. And today we get to see 
the greatest miracle once again in our text. Jesus exalts the greatest work. And man, he challenges even me once again. When I think I couldn't be shocked, when I think I couldn't be challenged, I've read these things, I understand these things, once again he gets at my heart. And I love this, sheep and sinners clothing. We're in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 9 to 13. Can we stand for the reading of God's word to pay honor to him and to remember whose word we are reading? I love to stand for the reading of his word to honor him and to remember this is God's word, not my word. These words will change you. My words will not change you. My words may motivate and encourage, but I can't transform a heart. I can't transform a mind. I could convince people. I could talk somebody into something, but they will be easily talked out of it. And so we need the word of God to come in contact with our hearts and minds and challenge us to the core and magically, mystically, spiritually change our minds forever, change our hearts forever. That's what the word of God does. Matthew chapter 9, take a look at verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you how it challenges even the most righteous of our day. We thank you that you go after the one no one will go after. You pursue the one that no one will pursue. You save the one that no one will save. You are a gracious king. You're an awesome God. We come to worship you today through your word. We ask that you administer to us. Open our eyes, open our ears to your word. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week we saw the greatest miracle. A paralyzed man was brought to Jesus, and instead of healing him, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, pal. And the guy like, wait a minute, what about the uh, healing thing? You know, like... Uh, I'm kind of paralyzed and stuff. Would you want to do like a little magic and like heal me and stuff? No, no, no. You have a greater problem. You're dead spiritually. You need to be forgiven. Because if I heal you of your physical but don't heal you spiritually, you walk in this world but you won't walk in the next. I'm going to heal you deeper than you could ever imagine. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to forgive you of your sin. And the Pharisees standing there, the scribes nearby are like, hey, what's this guy doing forgiving sin? Only God can forgive sin. He can't do that blasphemy. And then Jesus looks at him and says, hearing their thoughts, it says, he heard them saying this inside, whispering to each other, hey, which, which is more difficult, 
that I forgive his sin or I raise him and watch him walk. And then he says, rise up and walk. And the man rises up and walks. He gets a double blessing. He gets his sin forgiven. And he rises up and walks. And the Pharisees, the scribes, are proven wrong because if he was able to heal the paralyzed man and get him to stand up and walk, do the physical, the magic trick right before their eyes, surely he was doing something spiritual, forgiving the man of his sins. Today we will see the writer of this book. Which gospel are we in, Bible students? Matthew. Yes, Matthew. We will see the writer of this book, Matthew, show up in his story. He's writing about himself. And he will detail it exactly as he desires for it to be told. There are specifics that he emphasizes which he doesn't want us to miss. And that's what I want you to take note of. That's what I want you to zoom in on. If you were writing your story, what would you want to highlight and point out about your testimony about what happened to you? This is what Matthew does. Let's take a look. Verse 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus walking through Capernaum, he sees a man sitting at a tax booth. Couple things to notice. First, remember there are lots of people following Jesus around this time. At the house in the last story, remember where the paralyzed man was, there was no seating in the house. They couldn't even get the paralyzed guy in there. There was four guys carrying him on his bed. They were trying to get him in the front door. They couldn't do it. So they had to go up the side of the house, rip open the roof, and lower him down because there were so many people around Jesus. So as Jesus is walking around town, I'm sure there are hundreds of people around him trying to get his attention, right? And we see the Lord seek out a man who is not doing anything but collecting taxes. There he is sitting back, flipping his coins with his bags of gold there in his hand. He's not looking for Jesus. He's not running up to the Lord and bowing at his feet, not like the leper, not like the centurion man. No, no. He's just kicking back, just watching the crowds. Oh, look at oh, that Jesus guy's coming into town. He's just doing what he does every day, collect taxes. Arkant Hughes writes, to most first century Jews, tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. They were viewed as religious and political traitors, trained extortionists and thugs among the highest criminal element. The Mishnah and the Talmud, two ancient rabbinical documents, register scathing judgment of tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. These guys are the dogs of society. You might as well lump them in with the thieves and murderers. They are criminals at the highest level. They just have a nice robe on. They got a nice suit on. They work for the government. They're the worst of the worst. And no one talked to these guys unless you were a part of them or you had to pay some taxes. These were the enemies of society. Let me ask you today, who is the enemy in our society to you? That's who Matthew is a picture of. 
Whoever you think is an enemy of you, that's who Matthew is. He's the one you would never talk to. He's the one you would never hang out with. He's the one you would stay far away from. I don't know who that is. But I know who it is for me. And the Lord challenges us in coming face to face with an enemy of mine. This guy wants nothing to do with Jesus as far as the text tells us. He's just minding his own business, making money, and the text almost implies that he would have continued to do so as Jesus passed by. There's the Lord walking by with his crew of followers always trying to get close to Jesus and Jesus not spending time necessarily with those around him trying to get his attention and Matthew just kicking back flipping a coin just sees him walk by he would have just continued his business there's that Jesus of Nazareth guy surely he knew about the Lord Capernaum is not that big of a town everyone knew Jesus of Nazareth because of all the miracles he was doing in the Galilee region which is the Sea of Galilee region Small area. Everybody knows everybody there. The Sermon on the Mount just happened. His fame was spreading quickly in the land. For some reason, which none of us know, which Matthew himself still tries to understand, even as he is writing this down, as he is writing the gospel, I can see this man, Matthew, trying to understand why this happened. In that moment, on that day, as Jesus was walking by the tax booth with all the people around him, he stopped and turned and looked directly at Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus locked eyes with the enemy in town, walks right up to his booth with no previous conversation and says to him, follow me. And to all of our surprise, Matthew gets up at the command of Jesus and actually follows him. Verse 9, the end of verse 9 says, and he rose and followed Jesus. Luke adds, Dr. Luke, the gospel of Luke, very detailed in his writing, he adds, Luke 5, 28, so Levi, Jesus changed Matthew, or from Levi to Matthew, Levi got up left everything and followed Jesus. He adds that he left everything. He walks away from the table. He leaves everything. What is going on here? No event. No band to draw him in. No music going on. Did you see any musicians there at the altar call? I didn't see any. No food truck or bounce house to get him into church. I didn't see anything. No giveaway or raffle, no music, no lights, no conversation, no altar call, nothing. No previous conversation. He walks up and says two words, follow me, and it happens. What happened to all the coercion and, and working him up and getting him focused and trying to schmooze him into a relationship with Jesus? Hey, if you come to Jesus, you're going to be rich. If you come to Jesus, you're not going to have any problems in life. You come to Jesus, you'll never get sick of cancer. You'll never die. Go tell that to the apostles who all died for coming to Jesus. Every single one of them except for John 
died a horrible death because they followed Jesus. The leaders. Why didn't John die? They put him into a pot of oil and tried to boil him to death in oil, but he wouldn't die. So they sent him to the island of Patmos and left him there to die in isolation. And there he wrote the book of Revelation. Wow, nothing to lure Matthew in to help him make a decision to follow Jesus. And Matthew, the one this happened to, is telling the story. He could have colored it all up any way he wanted to. He could have added all the extra details, but he doesn't. He wants us to see how great the call of Jesus is to his people. When Jesus calls to his sheep, they hear him and they follow. When the shepherd calls his sheep, they know his voice and they follow. Point number one, if you're taking notes, don't worry, there's only two. Jesus' sheep hear his call. It's amazing when you watch a dog know the command of its owner. You ever see that? It says a magic word or he does the call. I can, I know this sounds crazy, I can call my cat to me. No, you can't. You're lying, Pastor. Wait, is this a miracle or something? No, it's true. Eden, as of recent, has discovered, my little Eden, she's three years old, she's discovered as of recent how fun it is to pick up Bella, the cat. Pick her up and hold her. Hey, Dad, I want to go pick up Bella. Dad, I want to go pick up Bella. Over and over, she wants to go pick her up. And Bella obviously doesn't want to be picked up. Because cats do, but she's very kind to the kids and will take her time with the kids. And Shep now, my little boy, he's only eight months, and uh, he's aggressive, man. He just walks up, handful of hair, rip. Grabs a tail, yank. I mean, it's awesome. And Bella's like running for her life. And I'm like, hey, you, you wanted attention. So, but Bella will come to my call. I'll say, Bella, and I will rub my fingers together and she'll come to me. And I, I don't know, I did this when she was young, a kitten. And before you know it, she developed it. And now she'll come to me. So Eden will walk up to me and say, Daddy, please call Bella to me. Come on. You know, I said, she wants me to call Bella over so she can pick her up again because Bella's mad that she keeps picking her up. But do you ever see a shepherd call sheep? Sheep are dumb. Sheep are the dumbest animals, some of the dumbest animals on the planet. They will literally follow each other off of a cliff. They will do it. Just like one in front of me, okay, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. Shepherds have to lead their sheep to food, to the grass. They have to lead their sheep to water so that they can drink. They have to protect these animals because they don't have anything to defend themselves. They're dead meat. But when the shepherd calls the sheep, the sheep are trained and know the voice of their shepherd and they follow him wherever he goes. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside steel waters. He restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Why? Because me as a sheep, I can't do it. Jesus' sheep hear his call. Hi, baby. That's my Eden. She hears my voice. John 10, 27, Jesus said this. Let's, let's just listen to how he stacks these words. Listen to what the Lord says. 
Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. No one. Not even you. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Had sad news this last weekend. One of my good buddies, this guy is a uh, PhD. Got his PhD at 23 years old. He's a physicist, scientist, apologist. He got a master's in a apologetics. And uh, he's a young guy. He came here to the church many times from Canada, came down, stepped into the college ministry years ago, and uh, we got to disciple him and build him up on the college campuses, and he was a force to be reckoned with. Sadly, um, through the last year and all that has been going on, he was struggling and wrestling with this question as to whether or not he knew God and whether or not he was saved, even though in September 2020, he's standing on the college campus calling college students to repentance, doing open-air preaching on campus, trying to reason with them the scriptures. And sadly, he had believed somehow to see that he had committed the unpardonable sin, that he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and lost his salvation, and that he was going to go to hell. The depression so overtook him that I received an email from his brother this last week. He took his life last weekend. And oh, how I wish I could say this to Graham. I'm sorry, Graham. You're a very smart guy. But Jesus says very clearly, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And I saw the fruit in Graham's life. I watched the fruit in his life over a decade walking with Jesus strongly, even to last September 2020, preaching the gospel, calling... They don't even know who they're arguing with. You've got a, one of the smartest guys on the planet, these college kids, and here they are mocking him. No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. No one. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Even if your own heart and mind condemn you, once you become a sheep, once you are a part of the flock of God, you are never not a flock of God. Once you are born again, you can't be unborn again. It doesn't matter how depressed you are. It doesn't matter how overwhelmed you are. It doesn't matter what circumstances are going on around you. Even Samson took his own life. And we see Samson in heaven. Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in as well, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus has a lot to say about this. The whole earth sits in two camps, really. 
This is a little bit of deeper teaching today. Are you okay? Strap on your seatbelts. Are you all right? There are those who will never believe, and there are those who will believe. Those who will believe are sheep, and when they hear the call of their shepherd, they will come to him. Those who will never believe are goats who don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. Well, how do you know who is a sheep and who is a goat? You don't. I don't. So I have to preach the gospel to the whole world, and the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, will call his sheep through the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. I preach to the whole world and let God do his work. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they will follow me. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. I do the talking, he does the calling. I do the preaching, God does the saving. Can anyone save anyone here? I don't know a single human who can give people salvation or raise them from the dead spiritually. Can you make the deaf hear and the blind see anyone? If I, if I knew how to do this, I would do it for everyone. Only God can save. People say, I have the gift of healing. I'm like, really? Come on, let's go to the hospital. I can do this, I can do that. Are you sure? Because that is the work of God in which he allows you to do when he desires. And it is amazing that God would use any one of us to do these great and amazing things. Notice Matthew didn't do a single thing good. He didn't go to a small group to get introduced to Jesus. He didn't get a track left on his door. He was actually in sin all the way up to Jesus coming face to face with him. He did nothing. And he was actually an enemy of God and of the people. He was a thug. He was running with the worst of the worst of society. He was the mobster in the back of the casino, working angles, making deals. So why does Jesus go to him? Can anyone tell me why did Jesus go to him? He didn't go to church. There's no good reason unless the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been talking about this in heaven long before Matthew was born. Paul, the Christian killer, Saul of Tarsus to Paul, the Christian killer, turned to be the great apostle of God, writes this in Galatians 1.15, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him. The apostle Paul says, before I was born, God had a plan to make me an apostle. But, so, but Paul was Saul before that. And do you remember what he was doing? He was arresting Christians and having them killed. He was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. How in the world did this guy come to Jesus? He wasn't going to church either, did you know? You know where he was? On the road to Damascus. You know what he was doing on that road? He was on his way to go hurt more Christians. You know what happens? All of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, Hey, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? Do you know who I am? You're my apostle now. Game over. I'm giving you new eyes. And it says that he, he went blind for three days. 
There were scales on his eyes. He couldn't see. And he had to be prayed for, and the scales fell from his eyes. And all of a sudden, he saw clearly. And the Apostle Paul is the greatest apostle of the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament Bible. The Christian killer turned the greatest apostle. How does this happen? Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah writes that God said to him, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, I had a plan. God has had a plan before time comes to pass, and his plan is being carried out. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's writing the story, not me. Watch this. It gets crazier. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son. Who? Mary. Hey, Mary, surprise, you're pregnant. What? I wanted to plan for this. And I'm sorry, it's a boy, and you don't get to name him, okay? It's I get to name him. I'm sorry. But I'm the one pregnant. I'll be pregnant for eight, nine months. Come on, don't I get to name him? No, you don't get to name him. You will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means you will call him the Lord is salvation. This is what you're going to name him. You want to know why? This is before he's born. This is before she's even into her first trimester. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How do you know he will? because we've been talking about it for eternities past. Don't, haven't you heard the news in heaven? Hello? Don't you know? Everybody knows. No, this is news to me. So he's gonna save his people from their sins. Yup, it's not a maybe, it's not a might. He is going to accomplish this work and the devil will not stop him. Humans will not stop him. Nobody will stop him. He will carry out his plan. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul writes to Timothy, our God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, according to his own purpose. Can God have secrets that he doesn't tell humans? Yeah. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. Does he have to get permission? Um, are you okay with me doing this? He is God. He can do whatever he wants. He could be a terrible dictator and crush the earth if he wanted to. He can do whatever he wants. Praise God that he is loving and merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient with his people. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we are children. We, his children, are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. I can't know the mind of God and why he walked up to Matthew. I don't know. All I see is what happens afterwards, but God had a plan in eternity's past. I don't know why God allowed Job. Job didn't know why to be tested at the highest level, crush his family, crush his business, take everything from him, even his own health, 
so that God might be glorified. But Job in the middle of it is saying, God, what is going on here? He didn't know the plans of the past or the future, what God was up to. But God had a plan. When Jesus was being crucified, remember? If you were one of the apostles sitting there, one of the disciples sitting there, oh no, Jesus is being crucified. Our king, our master, our Lord. God, what are you doing? You're messing the whole thing up. He's being crucified. He's being put to death. Somebody do something. The, the savior of the world's being killed right now. We're, this, we're doomed. The whole thing is over. Don't you get it? Somebody stop this. They would cry. And God would crack open the clouds of heaven and say, nobody will stop this. For there is the Lamb of God who is being slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. This is my plan. This is my will. This is my doing. That's my cross. I planted that tree. It grew up. I had the men chop it down. I had them make a tree. I had them form those nails. I had those humans be born. All of this came to pass at my will so that salvation would come to the earth. Who is going to stop the plan and salvation of God? It was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. He will crush the snake's head. It will happen. This should give you comfort in the world today. Oh my gosh, there's chaos going. Do you see the news? God says, yeah, I see. Yeah. Oh, oh you didn't think I knew about all this? Oh, oh, you thought I was surprised by all that's going on on the earth, like it took me by surprise? He knows the end from the beginning. He's always known. God doesn't learn anything at any point. He never learns. He is always known. He's infinite, eternal. These are his attributes. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. We forget these things all the time, and Matthew is a perfect picture of it because it breaks all the, all the rules of how people come to Jesus in the church today. He literally walks up to the tax booth. Jesus, in the middle of the crowd, stops, looks at Matthew, walks up to his booth. The crowd is shocked, thinking, what is Jesus doing going to pay taxes? Or maybe rebuke this sinner. Yeah, yeah, go tell him. He was mean to my family last week. Lord, go light him up. Go rebuke that sinner. The Lord locks eyes with him. He leans forward at his table. And he whispers to him, follow me. And the text says that Matthew leaves everything. everything at the table and follows Jesus. I don't know what's more shocking. The fact that Jesus stops and does this, calls this tax collector, or the fact that Matthew actually listened and obeyed. You know how much I try to talk and convince people to obey Jesus? I spend hours doing this. And the Lord with two words commands a man to follow him and he does it just like that. 
It's like a king summoning his army. At his command, they follow into war. They follow into battle. They follow into life. They follow into death. With two words. You know how the apostle Matthew died? This man right here, the tax collector, according to church history, Matthew, the tax collector, like most of the apostles late in their lives, became missionaries. And he was arrested in Ethiopia, in Africa. It was there that he was staked or impaled to the earth by spears. He was impaled. And then it says beheaded. Not much beyond this is known since Matthew was in such a remote place in Africa and went where few historians or Christians ventured to go. He went after it. Two words. Two words. And it called this tax collector all the way to the end of his life to be a missionary in Africa and give his life for Jesus. He died alone. The call of Jesus is forever. When a person is called, they are called forever, and all it takes is a single word from God. God said, let there be light. Boom, the universe opens. God says, let there be light in your heart, in your mind, and boom, everything is opened. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian philosopher, he said, I am bold to say that the work of God, the conversion of one soul, is more glorious than the work of the creation of the whole world. To have a soul be converted, to have a person come to the knowledge and understanding of salvation is magical. It's mystical. It's simple, yet the most profound moment in a person's life. One moment running from God, the next moment walking with him for all of eternity. If you hear his voice today, if you hear his voice, open the door and commune with him. Walk with him. Follow him. Everyone on this earth does not hear his voice for some reason. I shout louder and louder and try to get them. I'm trying to clean out the earwax. Do you hear? Don't you get it? Jesus has died for your sin and made a way for you to be reconciled to God. Have your sin forgiven and a relationship with God forever in heaven. Don't you get it? And one person, magically, the lights turn on. And the next person hears the same exact thing I had. They hear nothing. I don't know why. If I knew why, I would flip a switch in every single person. I preach, God saves. Listen, he loves you. If you hear his voice today, respond to him. Hebrews chapter 3 God says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts like in the day of rebellion. If you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Don't turn away. Listen. God says to his people in Isaiah 43, verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God said that to his people in the Old Testament, to Israel. But he gives forms of it in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. You, Christians, are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Dave and I were at M Street Coffee here uh, in Sherman Oaks this last week. We're getting coffee, talking uh, church stuff, and as we do each week, and we roll up on this guy standing there, and uh, he, he's a young guy. He's, he's 27, but he's got a little tent set up right in Sherman Oaks. He's homeless. He has a degree. He lived in San Francisco. He moved down here. He got into trouble with a bunch of stuff. And Dave and I realized as we're talking to him, we're not here to talk about San Francisco and the homeless problem down here. We're here to share Jesus with him. So we proceed to start telling him the crazy ideas of the gospel. That he needs to repent of his sin and call on God for forgiveness so he'd be healed inwardly and not just outwardly. And we get to proclaim this to him and trust that God is working in him to call him out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love these exchanges. I love the exchanges on the street. It reminds me of this text with Matthew. It's not in the church. Family, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people set apart to proclaim the gospel to this world here in L.A., I dare you to take steps of faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. I have to say this crazy message to people here in this city. You want to know why? What if the lights click on? I know it did for me. To the non-believer, to the person who doesn't have ears or eyes to see, they think it's the craziest thing they've ever heard. You mean this dude like 2,000 years ago got on a cross and like, died and blood everywhere and stuff and you guys like drink a cup representing his blood and you eat crackers representing his body you guys are nuts you guys are crazy it's foolishness to the non-believer the gospel is foolishness but to those who are being saved it is the power of salvation it's life matthew saw it he says forget it he leaves his table I don't need any of this junk anymore. Let's go. He starts following Jesus, becomes one of the greatest apostles to ever walk the earth. Look at verse 10. You guys okay? As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I love this. Sheep in sinner's clothing. Reclining happened at the more fancy dinner parties and special events. Jewish people in that day also sat at tables, but they'd pull out, pull out the reclining atmosphere when it was like luxury time. We're going to really, you know, bless the guests. We actually did this when I, was, I got to travel the Middle East when I was younger, and uh, when we went to Egypt, on the, uh, on the east side of Egypt, there's a place called Dahab, and it's on the Red Sea. And uh, we went to Dahab, and we were staying there, this little hotel. Everything's five bucks. Five bucks for the night to stay there, five bucks for your meal, five bucks for everything. It was fantastic. And we, I remember when we sat down, we're sitting on the Red Sea, and the way that they sat is they would recline at the table. So literally, we all, it's just like a carpet on the ground, really nice carpet, obviously. And there's just pillows all the way around, and everybody's sitting back on the pillows, and then there's a table down on the floor about like this. It was super cool. I thought, man, we should bring this to L.A. I think it would be, it's a million-dollar idea. You can have it. There you go. Cheers. Um, but uh, you get to sit and recline, and, and everybody's relaxed and, and hanging out at these uh, tables on the floor. 
Well, Jesus is relaxing and hanging out with this crew. Of all dinner invites that week, he chooses this one. Matthew then invites all of his rugged friends, thieves, murderers, drunks, criminals, prostitutes, over for dinner to meet Jesus. He's like, I'm going to go tell all my guys. He hits up the group text. You guys got to come over for dinner tonight. It's going to be on fire. You guys got to get here. It's going to be so fun. They're like, yes, good party tonight. I'm going to be there. And of all dinner invites, Jesus chooses to show up to this one. Was there sinful things happening at that dinner party? Probably a house full of sinners and tax collectors. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is there with these sinners and tax collectors. Praise God. Praise God Jesus makes these kinds of moves. You want to know why? Because you are that sinner at the table and the Lord sits down next to you. Can you imagine? I'm not that sinner. Point number two, finally, Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus is so upside down and backwards from what we think at times. Yes, he even shocks me over and over again. Careful, you don't want to be the guys in the next verse. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing hanging out with those dudes? He's going to get sinner cooties on him. You don't want that. Those asking this question don't have the fundamental understanding of the gospel. Hello, what is, why is he eating with sinners? First off, all people are sinners. Thus, anyone he eats with will always place him in a category of eating with sinners. Who is eating with, oh wow, they're fancy. Okay, oh, they, they must not be, oh, actually they are sinners too. <laughs> Just because they don't have external sin, they're not in sin, oh, the sin of the heart, that's the sneaky one. We got everything put together on the outside, but we actually hate people on the inside. We actually are deceptive and manipulative on the inside. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Everyone is in the same camp. Just because your sin is an outward doesn't mean you don't have deep sin inward. We all need Jesus the same. Second, they clearly don't know who Jesus is and why he came. They don't understand the heart of God. They think it's more important to look fake holy on the outside than dine with sinners and see them saved from hell. It's better to not eat with them and let them go to hell, to appear holy, than to dine with them and minister the gospel to them and see them saved. 1 Timothy 1.15, I love this verse. The Apostle Paul, yeah, the, the Christian killer, turned great apostle, wrote this to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the chief. 
He says, Jesus' whole mission was to come and save sinners. It's his whole mission of who I am the chief. I'm the captain. I'm the king of sin. That's what Paul says. No, Paul, you're the apostle. You wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. No, you don't know my heart. You don't know my mind. I am the chief of sinners. And I need Jesus the greatest, Paul declares. That is a true sign of maturity. That is a true sign of drawing close to Jesus. The closer we get to him, the more we see our sin, the more we see our need for him. Matthew eleven nineteen. here is where this phrase, friend of sinners, comes from. Matthew eleven nineteen. the son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, that Jesus guy, a glutton and a drunkard. Was he eating a bunch of food at the table? Drinking on some wine? Look at him, that glutton and drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was named friend of sinners by the enemies of God. You got something right. Friend of sinners. They asked, why is he hanging out with them? He should be wanting to hang out with us. Don't you know who we are? We're the scribes. We're the Pharisees. We're the most holy in the land. Dude, we got more. We got, these guys have never even cracked open a Torah. They don't know anything. Why doesn't he want to hang out with us? Verse 12, but when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, hello. Why would a doctor hang around healthy people? He goes to the sick to heal them of their sickness. I'm going to the sick. I'm going to those who are hurting. I'm going to those who are crushed and overwhelmed by their sin. Family, if you aren't around sinners, how will sinners ever hear the gospel? I don't want to get any sinner cooties on me. I can't do that. I, I, what, what do you mean? This is our whole mission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Listen, you will touch people I'll never touch, and I'll touch people that you'll never touch. We all hang out in different crowds, in different places. We know different people. You were called. Go, therefore, make disciples. When the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is our calling as Christians. We're so scared that we forget that these sinners might actually be sheep. Just sheep in sinners' clothing for a while. Thus that was you. That was me. I had sinner clothes on. But deep down in there, God was calling me. I'm so thankful somebody stopped to minister to me. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Martin gave that to me yesterday. Thank you, Martin. Then the Lord said, go and learn what this means. He tells these, the scribes, the scholars, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you guys are righteous and stuff, I ain't got time for you. But if you're a sinner, I got lots of time for you. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6, 
For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Loving people, not rituals, desiring to see people saved from their sin, not looking high and holy on the exterior. You can do all the rituals and sacrifices and your heart still be far from God. The Pharisees did this. They did all the holy acts for approval from people and they missed the approval of God. They loved self-righteousness and people being in awe of how great and how smart they are and how clean externally they are. But internally they were dark, evil, manipulative, and deceptive. Jesus calls them snakes. Matthew 15, 18, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, these guys, they pray on the corners and try to look all holy. Inside, they're dead. This is what God wants. Are you ready? Psalm 51. This is after David, the giant slayer. David, the king, the man after God's own heart. This is after he had taken a woman named Bathsheba, got her pregnant, then killed her husband. And in repentance, he wakes up and he realizes what he's done. And he says this, Psalm 51, 15. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of our God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He says, I can get all the animals and I can sacrifice them. I can do all this external stuff, but my heart can still be far from you. You want a broken, sincere heart before you. That is what you desire. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You don't have to convince the tax collectors they're sinners. Isn't that crazy? Jesus walks in there and want to start a sermon, Bible study today. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're like, Amen. They all agree. If you are a sinner, you are in the perfect place and the perfect candidate to become a follower of Jesus. I want to read you some lyrics as we close. What do you say? It's from a, uh, a poet. I like this guy. His name's Andy Minio. He wrote a song called Shame. He says, became a Christian, heard about God's power, couldn't see it in my life. But I could tell you all about it, overloaded with knowledge, making so little progress, becoming a public figure, but my struggles were still in private. Only started tasting freedom when I'm being honest, and I learned that when I'm weak is when I'm seeing God the strongest. I know some people are going to be quick to throw stones, but I'll take all of these hits to know that you're not alone. He says, after 28 years of life, I decided everybody's a crook. Some just do a better job at hiding it. Oh, how good does freedom taste. I hope they, they're going to give me the forgiveness they're going to need one day, I pray. And then he goes on uh, at the end of the song. It's just amazing. Uh, this chorus just breaks out of celebration, and basically he goes on to say, um, It's just the best song. you got to go listen to it. No, I'm going to tell you. Jesus, he washes away all of my sin. He washes away all my sin. This is the chant of Matthew, the tax collector. This is it. The enemy of God. Jesus, he washes away all of my sin. Sheep in sinner's clothing. Because you don't know who's being saved. 
The sinners like Matthew are true sheep who hear the voice of God. They're saved. So don't judge a book by its cover. God may be saving them. And so what you need to do is preach the gospel to them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your favor in our lives. And we are thankful that you sent somebody to us to minister to us. They didn't know we were being saved. They didn't know that we were being called. They didn't know we could hear your voice, but they spent time with us. They, they prayed for us. They encouraged us. They ministered the gospel to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us, your people, to do the same. And I pray for those who you are calling today. There are sheep in the crowd who are just discovering now that they are one of your people. I pray that they would repent to you and turn to you with all of their heart. You would empower them and fill them with your spirit. I pray, Lord, that they would call upon you as Lord and Savior. They would turn away from the ways of the world. They would turn to you with all of their heart. Bless them. Thank you for bringing us together today. As they call out to you for salvation, I pray that you would say, as you say simply to them, follow me, I pray they would follow all the days of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.